You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thirty-three Champs de Mars, Seventh Arrondissement, Paris, 1983. The scientist examined the girl, his fingers pressing into her skin. She felt his touch against her shoulder blades, the knobs of her spine, the flat of her back. The movements were deliberate, clinical, as if he expected to find something wrong with her, a thirteenth rib or a second spine growing like an iron track alongside the original. The girl's mother had told her to do as the scientist asked and so she endured the prodding in silence. When he twisted a tourniquet around her arm, she did not resist. When he traced the sinuous path of her vein with the tip of a needle, she held still. When the needle slid under her skin and a rush of blood filled the barrel of the syringe, she pressed her lips together until she could no longer feel them. She watched the sunlight fall through the windows, blessing the sterile room with color and warmth, and felt a presence watching over her, as if a spirit had descended to guard her. As the scientist filled three vials with blood, she closed her eyes and thought of her mother's voice. Her mother liked to tell her stories of enchanted kingdoms and sleeping beauties and brave knights ready to fight for good. She spoke of gods who transformed into swans and beautiful boys who blossomed into flowers and women who grew into trees. She whispered that angels existed on earth as well as in heaven and that there were some people who, like the angels, could fly. The girl always listened to these stories, never quite knowing if they were true. But there was one thing she did believe. In every fairy tale, the princess woke, and the swan transformed back into Zeus, and the knight overcame evil. In a moment, with a wave of a wand or a casting of a spell, the nightmare ended and a new era began. Danielle Trussoni is the author of Falling Through the Earth, a memoir that was selected as one of the 10 best books of 2006 by the New York Times. Her first novel was Angelology. Her new novel is Angelopolis. Thank you for joining me, Danielle. Thanks, Rick. It's great to be here. This is such an interesting book, uh, these two books. They, what you do is to create uh, secret history, and you use the techniques of science fiction and fantasy, but everything is set in the workaday modern world, and I think that's a really interesting decision for you to make. Talk about deciding to create this kind of secret history that exists within our own world but we don't see. Well, I'm fascinated by by the idea of alternate history and the idea that there's something that we don't know in our lives every day. What fascinates me about the use of, of alternate history and about constructing a world where we have on the surface a seemingly smooth, normal, everyday existence something sort of scary lurking underneath, something not quite right. I think it stems in a large part from my influences, both literary influences and intellectual influences. For example, I've always been completely fascinated by history. And I've always been someone who tries to understand why. And maybe my um, sort of quest to understand why certain things happen leads me to create fantastical situations around those historical moments. For example, in Angelology, the first book in this series, a large part of the book is set in World War II uh, in Paris. And there's this sort of 
reworking of the idea of the resistance. But in, in the case of angelology, it's, uh, there's a supernatural element as well. It's a group of people who are working to contain, describe, um, and capture a group of evil angels. So uh, for me, uh, taking all of these elements of history, fantasy, uh, literary fiction too, because you know a lot of my influences are literary fiction, taking all of these techniques and throwing them into one pot and stirring it around has been really fun for me. One of the things that struck me that what, that I really liked was that you have these occurrences and things that we all know about, but there's a kind of a, a supernatural connection between them that we don't know about. And I'm wondering, when you're plotting your books, um, do you look like page through history and say, I have to have this event in the book and this event in <laughs> the book and that event in the book, yeah. then figure out how to connect them with your... That's sort of exactly how I do it. What I do is actually with the first book, because, you know, Angelology was my first novel. You know, I did, as you mentioned earlier, uh, my first book was nonfiction. It was a memoir about my relationship with my dad. So Angelology was my first novel, and I really wasn't quite sure how to, how to do it. You know, I, I obviously I'd read hundreds and thousands of novels, and I love uh, plotted fiction, but I didn't quite know how to put it all together. So what I did is I started with locations, not historical events, but locations. And there's one location in particular, the Devil's Throat Cavern, that had fascinated me for years, and I had always wanted to do something with this fascination. For those of you who haven't read the book, it's The Devil's Throat Cavern is a cavern in Bulgaria that is, it's a subterranean cavern, and it's there's a legend that it's the point where you can, if you keep going, you end up in hell. <laughs> and it's also the place where Orpheus went underground to find Eurydice and turned around and saw her and lost her forever. So this space was fascinating for me. Also, Paris in the 40s has always been a place that is really interesting. New York and the era that I was particularly interested in was in just after World War II in Abigail Rockefeller, for example. She's a character in the first book, and that location really inspired the, the plot. So basically, to, that's the long answer to say that, yes, you're right. I took places and events that were interesting to me and sort of put them together to make the plot. A similar thing happened in Angelopolis, which is book number two, but it's, you know, it's a little more streamlined. It was, again, Paris, but um, mostly Russia. One of the things I, I liked about Angelology is the way you created a book that was plot by revelation, where once we twigged that something's askew with our understanding of reality, as you show us in this world, we just can't wait for the next revelation as to what what is really going on. And I'd like you to talk about creating these moments of escalating revelation because I really love the part where Sister Celestine, yeah. where where we see her story. That's a really great uh, story. And you also do something interesting with this is the way you use stories within stories. We'll get um, depositions in the new book. Right. And, and so that's an interesting kind of way to just write a book. Yeah, for me, um, I'm, I'm really influenced by, it, it might sound funny, you know, I'm, I've written, you know, two supernatural historical thrillers, essentially, but my, my influences are largely 19th century British novels, which were told in an epistolary fashion with letters and with other sorts of materials coming in that reveal the plot. And so it's interesting that you say that you like how, you know, chapter by chapter something's revealed, you know, and you become further and further aware of the story in this fashion. Um, 
the you have a nod to Wilkie Collins. Yeah, I love <laughs> Wilkie Collins. Wilkie Collins is one of my uh, great, great heroes, actually. The Moonstone is a favorite of mine. Uh, not enough people know about this book, so I, I recommend that everyone go out and read this book right now. But, for example, the episode that you referred to with Sister Celestine, it's, there's a tendency in the books for characters to speak for themselves. And so Sister Celestine sort of falls back into history and tells her own story. And that is a moment where the reader finds themselves in World War II. It's a way of going back. So I think this is just something, this style is, is a, a way of plotting and a way of storytelling that I really admire. I find it a shame that it's not used more often <laughs> in contemporary novels, but I mean, it's, it's really my homage to 19th century literature. Well, it's also a, a, a technique that's often used in science fiction as mm -hmm. well. And that's one of the things I really loved about this novel is you use uh, two big techniques of science fiction and fantasy. We have the kind of the uh, revelation, or in science fiction, are called info dumps, where the could say, well, wait a second now, on this planet, and instead in this book, you get it, wait a second now, we have <laughs> these angels. And I really love those plot, those times are really fun. And we also have in this book um, kind of a Lord of the Rings like quest for an object. And mm. I think that's an interesting to have that unfold in New York City. That's an interesting uh, and fun uh, yeah. invention. Yeah, well, I like, I mean, it's interesting to me because I came, I, I come from a sort of literary tradition. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I admire science fiction, and I, The Lord of the Rings is a great, um, is, is great. And I loved reading that as well. But my first book was very, was a memoir, a literary memoir. And I had gone to the Iowa Writers Workshop, with, which is a very literary creative writing program. And all of the reading I had done was very, very literary. And so I think that I bring techniques from all sorts of genres together into one, you know, sort of one style. And hopefully, I mean, hopefully it has my fingerprints all over it. It's something sort of new. But at the same time, I want the book to be, I wanted both of my books to be highly sort of seductive in the way that they bring a reader into the world where the, I've, one of the biggest compliments I've had from a reader is someone saying, I don't know what's real and I don't know what's false anymore when I'm in the middle of one of your books. And um, creating a sort of seamless tapestry like this where you're, a reader is inside the book they're getting information that they recognize to be as historical, but then a character is using that information in a way that is completely supernatural and almost crazy. <laughs> but at the same time, you're sort of saying, well, maybe it could be like that. Um, this, for me, is the it was the goal in these books. I think one of the ways you achieve that goal, I love the, the feel of reading these books. The, once you start reading and you get like two paragraphs in, it feels like you've entered this dark, opulent hotel filled with these wall hangings that are ancient. And I think the way you achieve that is in part through your prose. And I'm wondering how much of this comes out of rewriting and how much of this comes out of like taking pictures of places and trying to describe them. That's a great question because a lot of my work is, it's very researched. You know, every scene, um, generally speaking, has, has is something that is not familiar to me in my daily life, so it takes a lot of research. And for the first book and the second book, actually, Angelology and Angelopolis as well, I tended to take photographs of the places I went to. For example, Angelology is set in New York City, it's set in Paris, it's set in Bulgaria. 
And I went to all of these places and took photographs of the locations that I was writing about. For example, there's a, um, a scene in Angelology that's set right across the street. For, uh, actually, it is in the MoMA and then across the street from the MoMA as well. And there was an apartment that I actually like took photographs of the apartment and have them because I, when I wanted to describe it, I wanted it to be accurate, absolutely accurate. And so, yeah, a large part of it is research, and a large part of it as well is rewriting. You know, the first book, Angelology, took me about four years to write, and much of that was in the continual revision. Angelopolis took a little bit less time to write, but still it wasn't something... I'm not, a, I, I'm not able to churn out a book in six months like some thriller writers are because I'm very concerned with the prose and, and the research. Well, too, you have a great sense of geography in your books. In every scene, everything we look at, we know where we are. We know what the world around us is like. And I think that's it's something you might not notice but if, until you think about it. But it's really important. And that's one of the things I think that makes your books so immersive. Once we get in that world, we're really in there. Oh, yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's, I want it to be sort of like a bath that you're getting into. So it just surrounds you, and, and you don't want to leave. <laughs> <clears throat> that, well, it achieves that. Now, it, and it took me a while, too, uh, partway through the first book, where you finally use the word gothic. And uh-huh. I thought, this is, you know, the perfect modern American gothic. We have uh, the heroine who doesn't know who she is, doesn't even know her own bloodline, trapped in the imposing edifice uh, alone at night. It's dark everywhere. I mean, I I feel like sometimes they don't ever turn on the lights in your books. (laughs) Oh, I love that you said that. Uh, They're they're quite dark. They are. I mean, the setting and not just the events that happen in the books, although there is some darkness. I've been told by readers that Angelopolis, the second book, is is quite dark. But just in terms of location and influence, you're right, it's very gothic. You know, all the classic devices of a gothic novel are used. The, the convent, for example, is very much a gothic convention. And uh, using a nun as a heroine is also a very gothic influence. So um, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> they're quite well, gothic. <laughs> talk about creating the characters in the first book, uh, Evangeline and Verlaine, these are really compelling characters, and I'm wondering how much of them happened to you um, as came out of the prose and how much you just wrote about them outside of the book. Well, it's, that's an interesting question because the whole book and the whole concept of angels came out of the character Evangeline. The story is, is I had wanted to write about Evangeline. I had been taking notes about this character for a long time, and I wanted to write about her. I knew she was in a, in a convent. I have a great aunt who is a nun, actually, in a convent at one very, very similar to the convent in the first book. Uh, I got permission through her to come and stay at a convent and and do research, right, because I wanted to, of course, take pictures and, you know, have all the notes about this character. Well, I got there, and I was given free reign to sort of wander through the convent, and I would end up every night quite late, I would go to their adoration chapel because they were, it was the same as in the book. They were doing perpetual, the sisters, I should back up a little bit for those people out there who haven't read the book. The convent is a Franciscan convent where the nuns are doing an act of perpetual adoration, which means that they're always praying. Two sisters will replace the next for 24 hours and then then they start over again. So I went and sat with these women while they were praying and I started to look around me 
And I realized that the entire chapel was filled with images of angels, either statues, paintings, stained glass, everything. And in that moment, I sort of said, this is a perfect connection between my character, Evangeline, and her world and what should happen in her world. So I got up and I walked through the through the convent and I found my way to their library, which is full of angel, books about angels. I sat down, it was maybe two or three in the morning at this point, and I read the rest of the night and by the morning I had the story. So to answer your question, that's a very roundabout way to answer it, but the characters, Evangeline and Verlaine, were really the heart of the book. It's from them that everything else emerged, rather than the, the concept of, you know, the two-line concept, thriller about angels, you know, and then everything else comes out of that. No, it was the opposite. It was the characters who really created that world. You, you do do a great job uh, creating this whole history and taxonomy of angels, and it seems like you had a lot of fun with that. And I'm wondering, one of the things that we as readers do experience is it's really fun to read these parts and, and kind of get to know the world as you've created it. And it's um, you, you build a world within our world that is not our world. It could be almost like Dune or something yeah. because it's so different. And I'm wondering how much of the reading experience that we feel as readers came out of your reading experience reading those books in the convent? That's a good question. Um, well, you know, the books I read in the convent were very, they, were, they weren't the sort of new age books about angels that, that we see in, in uh, bookstores. You know, they, they were very uh, technical, you know, and the kinds of books that women who had been studying uh, religious texts their whole lives would read. And so uh, there's a sort of academic quality to the taxonomies that you find in the book. And, and yes, you're right, I had a great time creating, because all of the angels, most of the angels in, in these books um, are, are listed in some religious texts or another, but I've given them characteristics, I've given them qualities that they don't have in these texts. So I would say, you know, maybe 30% is from these books and the rest is my imagination. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing totally... For example, none of the historical events are totally invented, and most of the angels in the book are a combination of biblical and my imagination. Do you have a Bible for your books? I don't <laughs> yet, although, you know, it's funny because my publisher in Spain actually created a little book with pictures of the angel wings and the different kinds of angels, and I thought, that's an amazing idea. I should really just make a collection of all of them. Yeah, you need to get an illustrator. and Yeah. And, uh, Danielle Trussoni's Guide to Angels. I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a bestseller, right? Yeah, exactly. I better get on that. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I, I really liked, you were talking about the academic nature of the writing, and there's some, some kind of academic writing in here, too. And I, and I think what, what struck me is that, uh, and I'm thinking uh, in, uh, in angelology, at least, there's a, a part where you talk about the first angel cataclysm. Mm. And it, it's just straight kind of like out of a, a scholarly book. And what I liked about that is that at once it's kind of a satire of, of dry academia because it has that kind of tone, mm. but it's this really wild, insane <laughs> stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it takes itself very seriously, and I really like that. And I was thinking that, you know, the best satires are take themselves very seriously. I was thinking of Jonathan Swift, A, mo a mm. Modest Proposal. I mean, it's horrific, but it's funny, but it takes very dry and serious. Here's how we saw <laughs> the potato famine. So I'd yeah. like to, to talk about creating these kind of academic satires because it happens in, 
in all the books. You do this all the time. And yeah. I, it's something you clearly enjoy. I enjoy it, I think, because at one point in my life, I thought maybe I would be an academic. Very, very studious in college, and I wanted to go and get a PhD in English literature. And I, But I just couldn't do it because the same sort of thing. I, in my mind, I would start to create... <laughs> You know, almost a satire about the things I was reading, and I just couldn't do it. So, uh, you know, so I think that that's probably spilling over into the, my fiction. Also, one part of this world is is the Academy of Angelology, mm-hmm. and so there's this there's um, an academy in Paris, and these people take themselves very seriously. You know, it's very you know everyone in this academy has memorized all of these texts and these texts are sort of the foundation of what they do even though as you see as you move from angelology to the second book angelopolis you see it becomes less academic and more sort of action with the angel hunters that are introduced in the second book but um so i wanted to create it's sort of tongue-in-cheek but at the same time for them for these characters i think that gabriella for example or valco or any of these characters would really um see these texts as very serious well that's what i I really like is that within the realm of the book you take it seriously Mm. and you're not but i think it's has this interesting edge to it Mm. that makes the books really fun to read and I was wondering as I was reading this book if Angelopolis, if, the, if some of the plot elements of that had came about before you even finished Angelology. Some of them, but a lot of them, um, you know, for example, I knew when I was writing Angelology that I wanted to introduce the idea of angel hunters, right? It's like, kind of a forensic book. Yeah, it's almost more for a little <laughs> more forensic. CSI angels. Exactly. It's a little more along those lines unless I and I also knew I wanted to move away from the strictly religious side of it. I mean, not that angelology is so religious, but a large part of it of that book is about nuns and in a convent and exploring religious texts, right? So I felt like once that was established, I wanted to sort of move the plot away from that side of things a little bit and sort of go into a different realm. And one of those realms is uh, um, the angel hunters, as I mentioned, but also um, a little bit of history uh, in Russia. And I had, I'm always, I've always been fascinated with pre-revolutionary Russia and the Romanovs. And this book, the second book, Angelopolis, is filled with history, historical anecdotes and information about Rasputin, about the Romanovs, about Fabergé eggs, for example. There's a large part of the Fabergé eggs act as a sort of vessel for clues. And so that part of it was something I had in the back of my mind before. Well, having just read recently uh, Robert Massey's biography of Catherine Catherine the Great, such a great book. Yes, such a great book. Uh, Really, it was it was nice to have read that before this book yes, because it really kind of... Yes, I read that to do research, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah, well, I mean, I was reading... Actually, if you're interested, if anyone out there is interested in Roman in Romanov history, especially about Rasputin, there's a great book called The Rasputin Files that was just published. Um, and there had, it's full of information that was um, collected just after the revolution by the Soviets about Rasputin, and then this was sort of lost in a vault somewhere. <laughs> and then it emerged again in the 90s where it was sold, where this whole m- cache of papers was sold at auction in Paris. 
And somehow through... This is like right out of your book. Exactly. Well, no, actually, my book is right out of yeah. <laughs> You know, it, I use real... I mean, this is a real mm-hmm. um, situation that I, I adapted to my book. Um, and uh, uh, what was I saying? Oh, and um, then a Russian historian got a hold of this and made a television program about Rasputin using these documents. So um, this book is, is fascinating for anyone who, you know, if you've read the Catherine the Great biography and you're still and you're interested in going into what happened with the rest and you will love this book I, I well I agree and I, I think because there are so many aspects of the Rasputin legend that have, you know, elements of the fantastic mixed into them. And that's one thing I think you do very well is in both these books is to uh, ground all your elements of the fantastic. It seems very real. You, we, you, we, you know, the first thing we see practically is a dissected angel. Yeah. For me, it's important to, if you're going to have um, something as sort of airy and supernatural as angels, <laughs> you need to have a very physical connection between the characters and that world, I find. So I tend to, most of my descriptions are very tactile, very real. And the historical information, I think, also has to be very accurate and real feeling to the reader in order to ground the story. Books you read with Google to hand. Yeah, exactly. I had, I had one reader, actually, it's so funny, because now Facebook has totally changed the way I interact with people who read my books. I have people sending me messages saying, I just Googled this, and actually it happened. <laughs> I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know that happened. But it's fun, you know. I think that people have a lot of fun with, you know, this idea of what's real, what's not real, finding how I've used historical information to uh, the benefit of the plot. I mean, this is something that I think readers have a lot of fun doing. Oh, absolutely. And it also helps the atmosphere of the book. One of the things you do well in this book is evoke, you know, that feeling of uh, paranoia, body snatchers. They they live among us. We yeah. don't see them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're very, very good at hiding. <laughs> uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the char- creating the characters of the angels because these are creatures that aren't human. So you have to create... Uh, characters who are who have some aspects, an outward aspect of humanity, but at core are not human, are part right. divine, and that must be a challenge for you. Well, yeah, it's really a challenge to make them believable. You know, you can there's there's two techniques for the for doing this. One, you can just ask readers to suspend their disbelief. You can just say, okay, we all know that there are you know angels are not real. Let's just pretend. Or you can try to find techniques to make them seem believable and really work at them. And I sort of opted for the second option and that brought challenges, of course. But one of them was finding, you know, for example, the Nephilim, which are the main bad guys in these books. They're a group of evil angels. I found reference to the Nephilim for the first time actually on that night in the convent when I was reading about angels. And they are mentioned just briefly in Genesis 6 in the Bible. Nothing too elaborate, just a little reference, which I ended up sort of looking, after looking further into this, that there's a, a text called the Book of Enoch, and there's a lot of other texts too, pseudo-epigraphical texts about this situation. Enoch? I did. It's oh. very, very dense and a little bit difficult to get through, but I did read it. It shows. It, it, oh, thanks. It gives a sort of completely crazy, you talk about how the academic papers in the novel are a little bit crazy, a completely strange view of how the early church fathers viewed these angels. For those people who haven't read angelology, the the Nephilim were the product of an affair between angels who came to earth 
fell in love with human women and they had babies and the babies were the Nephilim. So they were half human, half angel hybrids. And when you say this, people say, in the Bible, what? It's shocking, you know, I can't believe it. And actually it's been basically removed, you know, anything except for that one line in Genesis 6 has been, has been removed. But it's something that has caused a lot of speculation and a lot of interest among biblical scholars and others for, th- for a thousand years, you know. There's so many um, books about it. If it, That's another, if you're interested in learning more, you just go online and start looking up books about the Nephilim. You'll have 200 in five minutes. Well, one of the things, too, I like, and this is a very difficult uh, row to hoe, you're writing about angels. You have a lot of biblical literalism in here. And so you have to thread this very fine line between this books, these books aren't particularly religious. They, they don't have a kind of devotional tone or and none of no, that. They're, no, they're, they don't. But they have a realistic and gritty tone, and they're not happy-wappy, that's for sure. No, there's a little, they're a little dark. <laughs> they're they're a little gothic. Dark. <laughs> so I'd like you to talk about uh, finding that and creating that and cleaving to it so with such a nice tone that maintains through both books. Well, I think a lot of it just has to do with my personality. You know, I think I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school until, until I was in fifth grade. But my personal interests are very, very broad, and which include art history, which is very much in the, these books. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's fun. Yeah, because Verlaine, our hero, is an art historian. And history, literature, geography, all of these things are interests of mine. And so... I just sort of put them together and kept a tone that I I thought could hold these things together. I mean, I thought that it really, if if the tone is too bright, if the tone is too dark, you're going to lose something. So I wanted to find a, a nice even tone that would hold all of these, these elements together. Uh, one of the things I think that's nice is that we sense these books are part of a bigger arc. I'm wondering how much of that arc you knew when you started the first one. How much you know now, and how many? Do you know how many books there will be in the series? It's a trilogy. At this point, it's a trilogy. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> when I started this, it was a standalone book. Actually, um, uh-huh. I wrote I wrote Angelology thinking that this was just. I had no idea I was even getting in myself into this because when I started, this was going to be uh, a kind of mystery with Evangeline as the heroine. <laughs> and I didn't realize I was opening up this can of worms with angels. Once I started, I loved the world so much, and I loved the characters so much that I wanted to, I felt that I wasn't done. And so by the end of writing Angelology, I said, okay, there's going to be two more books. I'll make it into a trilogy. And at that point, I knew how the, the series would end. I wasn't quite sure about the middle yet. So this is the middle that's being published now. Uh, Angelopolis is coming. It's out. And that sort of brings us to the middle. And now I know the, the, I know the last book pretty well. I have a good idea. I have, I've begun working on it, and, and I know where that's going. But when it started, it was just going to be one, one book. <laughs> uh, one of the things I like in, in the new book is uh, there's a lot of chemistry and, you know, the alchemical wedding. So talk a little bit about the alchemical wedding and how that figures in. Well, one influence that I had for this book, other than Romanoff history and Rasputin, was alchemy, and John Dee in particular, who was a 17th century magician. And during that period, alchemy was sort of a proto-scientific practice. 
you know, it wasn't considered so much magic the way that we look at, you know, the way that we look at magic, but as something, as a quest to understand nature and natural philosophy. Well, you talk about how Isaac Newton and some of the other early scientists were equally interested in the divine and the scientific. The distinction that we make now between religion and science is a completely contemporary one. Isaac Newton didn't see the difference, and he would have thought it's very strange for us to ask him why, you know, why he's interested in religion and science at the same time. It was all sort of mixed in together. The same with John Dee, and for many of the early scientists. Do you know the title of your third book? The title of the third book at this point, I believe, is called The Angel Hunter. I've been speaking with Danielle Trussoni. Her new book is Angelopolis. Thank you for joining me, Danielle. Thanks, Rick. It was really a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.